Well, thank you so much for having me here. And and um, I am going to present something which I actually haven't really presented before. It's a part of a project that's really just completed. Um, and it is in some ways a little self-indulgent, but, but, but um, I figured I had written two really substantial ethnographies, one on Madagascar, which was about 400 pages long, and one on direct action, which is about 500 pages long. And I thought, well, you know, I thought I wanted to do some of the old classic, you know, ethnography long enough you could actually reinterpret it, you know. Um, so I feel that in a certain way, okay, now I've earned the right to just be completely responsible and, 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 and just sort of generalize. So um, I decided to write a book about debt, and um, that's what it would be, D-E-B-T. Um, it seemed like an important topic, um, rather understudied, the whole question, what is debt anyway? Um, you think about it, most social struggles and most revolts and uh, social unrest and arguments, moral arguments, um, have tended to focus around debt more than anything else. Um, and I became fascinated with the topic. I ended up producing a book which I've just finished called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. <laughs> and, um, um, but over the course of that, I came to some to be rather surprising conclusions about the history of money. So in some ways, it's, it's much a history of, of money as of debt. And of course, according to some theories, there is actually no difference. Money is debt. Um, and in particularly, one of the things that was particularly fascinating was um, about the role of virtual money, which we tend to think of as a new thing. Um, you know, I mean, anthropologists are used to sort of, um, taking issue with the sort of conventional economic history, whereby, you know, first you have barter, and then you have money, and then you come up with these credit systems. And there was this kind of evolutionary structure where credit derivatives and all that sort of thing, and Wall Street is this sort of logical end of the chain. Um, and, but one of the fascinating things I discovered is that in some ways it's not only wrong, it's, it's actually backwards, in the sense that virtual money comes first. Um, actual physical money as currency, as means of exchange, you know, 2,000 years, 3,000 years after people are using all sorts of complicated credit instruments. Um, and <clears throat> barter, in fact, in its sort of classical sense, tends to occur, as a number of anthropologists have pointed out, largely in areas where there used to be a currency system and it largely disappears. Um, now, then I realized that, in fact, you can look at the history of the world, of the Eurasian world, um, as marked by a series of sort of passages back and forth between ages dominated by virtual money and ages dominated by largely gold and silver um, or other precious metals as money. Um, and there seems to be a significant pattern. This is where it's one of the first times in my life that I actually wish I had PowerPoint. I usually avoid it religiously. But I'm going to um, imagine there's a chart on Walker. <laughs> and I will describe to you what it would, would look like. Um, so the first age um, is the age of the first agrarian empires, I'll say roughly 3500 3, BC, more or less, 32, uh, to 800 BC, e, um, where the dominant form is virtual credit money. Our best information from this period is um, largely from Mesopotamia. Um, 
although there's no particular reason to assume things were radically different in most other areas, um, Indus Valley, Bronze Age, China, and so forth, um, where you have money as a means of accounting really coming out of large public institutions, markets of certain types appearing on the side. But these, for the most part, most transactions are done through credit. I mean, people put things on the tab at the local tavern. Um, there are certain times a year they sort of settle accounts. Um, and you have these also you have these continual debt crises, which uh, characterize almost all of Mesopotamian history, whereby um, you have people ending up pawning their possessions, their flocks, their children and wives eventually, and each new king has to sort of establish a clean slate. Um, it becomes very almost institutionalized through large periods of Mesopotamian history, and of course this becomes the basis of things like the Jubilee, and, um, ancient Israel. Um, the second stage, okay, what, to Axial Age. Axial Age runs 800 BCE to 600. Um, this is my version of the Axial Age. It, of course, comes from Paul Jasper. Uh, Jasper is who had a much narrower definition, but I take it from about the period of Zoroaster to Muhammad, all sort of birth of all major world religions. Um, Jasper, as we know, was fascinated by the fact that um, the you know, Buddha, Confucius, and Pythagoras all lived at exactly the same time. Um, although there's no reason to assume that people, such people, were in any way in communication with one another, very, very similar philosophical schools. And, uh, basically, all the sort of big ideas that we've been dealing with ever since sort of appear simultaneously in three different parts of the world um, with no sign that they're influencing each other. Um, however, and this is what I find most interesting, and I'm going to be talking about the most about uh, this period, is also the exact same times and places where coinage is invented, apparently also completely independently, um, using actually different techniques um, in uh, the Aegean, in the Ganges Valley, and in the sort of northern plain of China. Um, they come up with totally different types of currency, but like almost exactly the same time. 600 BC is what they're now saying for Libya. Um, sometime in the 6th century, both in India and in China. Um, now, this is also a period of giant empires, uh, sort of birth of professional armies, which seems to be linked with the invention of coinage. Um, Slavery, chattel slavery is a huge thing, even in uh, areas where it wasn't really an uh, important phenomena in other, almost any other period of history. Um, of course, the rise of world religions. Um, and seems to be a historical pattern whereby periods of gold and silver money actually being used in tra daily transactions uh, are, tend to be periods of extraordinary war and violence. Um, the Middle Ages, I will put a Three. Tends to look very good in comparison, actually. Um, period from 600 um, CE to 1450 um, as a return to, by a return to virtual credit money again. And this is something which is kind of fascinating because you always read in books that the sort of economies revert to barter, but no one ever really talks about what that means in practice. Um, you know, it's not what you think. It's no evidence that anybody's actually saying, you know, I'll give you 20 chickens for that cow. Um, often what you actually find when you have any records is this sort of complex forms of barter which involve things like compound interest payments. And again, um, it's various forms of virtual money seem to predominate. Um, in England, for example, tally sticks 
were extraordinarily important. Um, just to give an example, um, which were sticks which were broken. You notch them for how much money is owed. They're broken in half. One half is called the stock, and the other half is called the stub. And one is kept by the creditor, one by the debtor. That's where those words come from. Um, it's actually a very common form of making contracts for um, for centuries. That's a, for example, the term indentured servant comes from the same thing. The indentures are the marks on the tally stick when you break, before you break it in half. Um, now. In fact, I think the Bank of England only stopped using tally sticks in 1810. Um, so um, they're, re- they're really very important. Um, of course, the period that sees paper money in China, which also comes originally from credit instruments, rather quite sim- grows out of tally sticks that were also used there. For example, they have paper um, versions of the same, which they rip in half, and eventually turns into paper money when it's adopted by the state. The check is invented in, in Iraq, what's now Iraq. Um, the word check is actually from Arabic. I always, when people talk about financial, uh, financial globalization, I always point out that if you look at the word cash and check, I believe you know, check is actually from an Arabic word meaning check. And cash, I believe, is a Tamil word for Chinese money. Original. Um, it's interesting to think about. Um, so, again, um, so the Middle Ages, you go back to virtual credit money. Um, it, I think we're rather confused about what the, how to really think about the Middle Ages because in a lot of, lot of, sort of classic medieval phenomena hit Western Europe very late. So the same things that are happening in China and the Middle East only really begin to reach uh, places like this four or five hundred years later. Um, talk about that in a moment. And then finally you get a period from 1450 to 1971, which I will call the Age of Capitalist Empires. Whereby you have, of course, with the, especially the conquest of the New World, um, this huge infusion of bullion again. Um, you go back to chattel slavery becoming a big thing. You go back to giant empires. Um, the price revolution in Europe. Although it's interesting, if you look at the full history, um, it really starts not in Europe. Uh, before Columbus, actually, live a rebellions against the use of paper money in China and China's reversion to the silver standard, which is one reason why all the gold from the Americas, why there was a market from it. So there's an interesting political history behind that that has been largely unexplored. And finally, the current era, um, I will date from somewhat arbitrarily, is period five, um, to 1971 to the present. Um, I guess I'm following Chris Gregory and other anthropologists who talk about Nixon's um, aban- final abandonment of the gold standard as marking a new period. But this new period is the one whose contours we do not yet know. I mean, you know, in this kind of historical scale that we've been talking about here, 30 years is, is nothing. We, we have no idea about what this is going to be like. Um, to just give one example that I've emphasized in the past, um, periods of virtual money tend to be accompanied by some sort of large overarching institution, usually supranational. Um, national is even appropriate, um, but beyond the extent of any given political polity, uh, which tend to operate to protect debtors. Um, thus, you have the sort of co- periodic debt cancellations from Sumer. I always find it interesting to note that the first recorded word for freedom in any written, known, known written human language is a margi, a uh, Sumerian word for freedom, which is a word for sort of uh, declarations of debt freedom. It literally means return to mother because everybody got to go home, all the certain debt, debt servants. Um, 
So you have that. In the Middle Ages, of course, there's all the usury laws, world religions, um, enforcing various... Well, you have the virtual credit money systems, but you also have very strong regulations to prevent things from getting out of hand. Um, so you would think that this period might be marked on by a reversion to that sort of thing. Um, in fact, what we have seen so uh, originally was, was almost exactly the opposite, the creation of things like the IMF, which were institution, global institutions to protect creditors. On the other hand, it's also clear that that whole apparatus really didn't work out that well. Um, so really, we don't know where it's going. And, and one reason I wanted to work on this scale is um, to... Because I think this is a kind of juncture in history where it's good to think about it. We are at a rupture, I think, of, of a really large historical scale. Think about what has happened in the past and what might in the future in that regard. Um, of course, this is a series on the body and materiality. So I wanted to see how to connect this. And <laughs> there's a connection. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Um, and I was actually in first inspired to think about this by Morris Leinhardt's uh, famous book, Do Camo. Um, there's this one passage in there um, that many of you might, must, might know. Um, Maurice Leinhardt was a French Catholic missionary um, and anthropologist who spent many years disseminating the gospel in New Caledonia. And one of the events which really sort of shocked him into rethinking his assumptions was when he was talking to um, one of his best students, a former sculptor, um, Kanak sculptor named Oesu, uh, about talking about having introduced the, uh, them to spiritual matters. Um, and um, the quote, once waiting to assess the mental progress of the Kanaks I had taught for many years, I risked the following suggestion. In short, we introduced the notion of the spirit to your way of thinking. He objected, spirit, bah, you didn't bring us the spirit, we already knew about the spirit existed. We've always acted in accord with the spirit. What you've brought us is the idea of the body. <laughs> Never occurred to anybody that they had bodies before, um, in that sense. And, and there seemed to be something profound here when I first read it. I wasn't sure what. Um, but the more I read about axial age religion, um, the more I realize that the way we talk about it is somewhat skewed by a series of assumptions which I think we, we would well to cast into doubt because in a certain way, you know, these are people who are being introduced to Catholicism, a sort of classic axial age religion, um, and noticing something about it that we almost systematically ignore because the rhetoric about the axial age that is sort of developed out of Carl Jasper's um, ideas, there's sort of small school of people who talk about this. The great theme is a, it's a, the sort of transcendent philosophies. The age marks the introduction of the notion of transcendence. But you know, what they seem to not pay much attention to is the fact that to have a transcendent ideology, you need to have something to transcend. Um, and his, if you look at the whole thing historically, a sort of transcendental breakthrough is actually almost a secondary phenomena to what's really going on, um, which is the birth of this aggressive materialism that seems to occur, again, in exactly those places where you see coinage first appearing. Um, I mean, even if you look at some of Carl Jasper's original language when he talks about the Axial Age, I'll, I'll give you one. Um, he says, let us designate this period as the Axial Age. 
Extraordinary events are crowded into this period. In China lived Confucius and Lao Tse. All the trends in Chinese philosophy arose. In India, it was the age of the Upanishads and of the Buddha. As in China, all philosophical trends, including skepticism and materialism, sophistry and nihilism, were developed. It's kind of a weird list, if you think about it. It's not exactly all philosophical schools. Skepticism, materialism, sophistry, and nihilism. And um, if you look at a lot of what was being bounced around at that point, um, a lot of the earliest stuff, it really is in that direction. It's like there's this kind of aggressive materialism, um, which is followed by a kind of a reaction um, that the question is, why it is happening in the places that it is? And the only people I've been able to find who really asked the question, is there a connection between these particular types of economic and social phenomena that you see happening at this period and the philosophical, this particular philosophical direction are, there's a sort of series of people, I guess the first of them was a Harvard literary theorist, really named Mark Schell, but there's a classicist named Richard Seifert who's really developed this in much greater detail in a book called Money in the Ancient Greek Mind. Um, has argued that the invention of coinage um, itself sort of threw up certain philosophical questions, which one cannot understand the sort of questions that um, the pre-Socratics were really asking without understanding the context. Um, and in some ways, it sounds a little far-fetched, uh, but some of the historical connections are so close that it's almost impossible not to think that there's something interesting going on. I think in order to understand, first of all, one of the most important things I need to emphasize is that the consensus of almost all contemporary historians in all these areas is that however the very first coinage came about, the fact that the phenomena disseminated as quickly as it did it had a lot, it was markets, impersonal markets using coins clearly were utterly inextricable from military affairs. It was largely a military phenomenon. Um, there had been theories, I think Cook, first proposed the idea that coinage was originally invented to pay mercenaries. Um, of course, then the question was asked, well, why would you be giving people something, objects if there wasn't already a market where they could spend them? Um, but I think this sort of mistakes the point. These money, of course, had existed for ages. Credit systems had existed for ages. Um, and in fact, those people who were doing the most trading weren't really interested in coinage. The Phoenicians were among the last of the um, people in the classical world to adopt coinage, even though they were the great traders of antiquity. Um, but those people who were supplying mercenaries and were involved in the sort of rise of professional armies um, tended to produce them very, adopt them and produce them very, very quickly. And you know, it makes a certain amount of sense. First of all, because if you um, have a large professional army, um, you know, a bunch of people who are heavily armed moving around, you have to provision them somehow. Markets tended to appear besides them. They're the people most likely to have large amounts of gold and silver that they can break up and um, into small pieces. Um, they're the people that you're probably least likely to want to extend credit to, for obvious reasons. <laughs> Heavily armed guys who are just passing through. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's a reason why that kind of market would appear around uh, military formations, as it seems to have done. And um, indeed, one of the 
it also solves one of the great mysteries of the ancient world, which is why it is that so many kings demanded taxes at all. I mean, it, in a way, it seems self-evident. If you're used to the sort of Adam Smithian theory that money arises, coins arise spontaneously through the needs of barter, um, inconveniences of barter, you know, of course, it makes sense that if people spontaneously invent coins, then kings are going to want to get their, whole, their hands on it. But if you think of it as being produced by the state, um, well, what's the point of taxes? Because... Um, or actually, if you don't think of it, if you think of it from the Adam Smith perspective, um, well, why not just grab the mines? You know, if, if gold and silver are just naturally money already, the obvious thing would be to just grab a hold of the source of the money, and then you're rich as you want to be. Why charge taxes? Um, you know, so you basically you, you grab all the money, you stamp your picture on it, you give it to people, and then you demand they give it back again. Um, the solution seems to be that this is actually a way of creating markets because provisioning armies was incredibly difficult in the ancient world. Um, and in fact, people are very conscious of this. If you read um, Quotilia and sort of ancient sources on statecraft, um, you practically need more people than you have in the army just to provision them. The easiest thing is just give them a little piece of something and say, everybody has to give some of that stuff back to me again. You just turn your entire population into an engine for provisioning your army. Um, so markets were created through taxation, essentially. Now, in this context, it's very interesting to look at um, what's considered the birth of Greek philosophy. Because it happens, you know, coins are invented by, in Lydia largely to pay soldiers, many of whom were Greek. There's huge numbers of Greek Ionian mercenaries. The Ionians start adopting it in their own cities. Miletus is a sort of major city, to, first city to adopt coinage. Um, to, and to actually use coinage as sort of day-to-day -day affairs. Um, this happens around 600. Um, they're also the place that's sort of coordinating the mercenaries being sent all over the East um, Mediterranean. Um, and if you look at the first history of Greek philosophy, it begins with who? You know, Thales of Miletos, 624 to 546, and Eximener of Miletos, 610 to 546, and Eximenes of Miletus, uh, 585 to 525, exactly this time. And what is the question all of them are asking is like, what is the substance that the world is made of? Um, some say water, some say, you know, you probably know the drill. Um, some say it's this abstract substance from which everything arises. But it's a question always about substance and material. And Seifert makes the reasonable point that, um, well, why are they asking this question to begin with? Um, and so... And the remarkable thing about coins is that, unlike previous virtual currencies, they were both a substance and an abstraction. And that's what was really interesting about them in a certain way. Um, and they're, of course, an abstraction that can be turned into anything. So this idea of abstract substance um, sort of follows naturally when you're dealing with coinage. Um, they were recognized both to be valuable as their material, but also to have a value beyond the material, because all ancient coins were worth more than the actual gold and silver that made them up. It's called fiduciarity, is the technical term. And that was actually recognized. In fact, there were great debates in antiquity about what, where the real value of coins came from. Is it just the metal? Um, is it conventional? Uh, Aristotle made the famous argument that money is a symbol on. Very important word, we'll see. Um, a social convention, which was the minority position. But people recognized that it was both. Um, there's like two forms of value sort of at place simultaneously, largely because outside of a community, coins were basically just the value of the bullion. But inside, um, they were whatever was acceptable in taxes. Um, 
So, and I think it's interesting to think about the very idea of a materialist philosophy in this regard. I mean, when we talk about the material, for example, in English, materials are something that we use to make something else. Um, Marcel Most made this point, actually, um, quite interestingly. I thought in an essay on substance, he pointed out that um, you know, we think of a subst material substance when we think of something that we can shape into a different form. So wood becomes a substance when you can carve something out of it. It's that potential of transformation that makes something into pure, pure materiality. Um, and in a certain sense, the, you know, coins are, embody that as well because they have the substance plus the mark, which is the sort of fiduciarity is the mark of the city, you know, sort of impressed upon it. Um, and so that distinction between form and content and between body and soul even is sort of played out in the very form of these things which become the absolute value that everybody has to have all the time. Um, rational intellect versus stubborn corporeal drives and desires that resist it. The idea that peace and community is not something that emerges spontaneously but needs to be sort of stamped onto our baser nature. That's how they make coins, stamping. Um, this, all of this sort of could be said to at least be encapsulated in symbol of coins. And often, uh, if you look at the language used by early Greek philosophers, they're, they're, the language of coining appears over and over again. Um, now, no one has really tried to apply this more generally. Um, but I think that it would be, since it seems hardly a coincidence that the same sort of philosophical questions are being asked every place that you see the invention of coinage, something is going on. Uh, and what I also want to draw attention to, this Seeper doesn't talk about so much, is that it seems to have set off, it gets caught up in social struggles of one kind or another. Um, I'll, let me switch from the Aegean for a moment to China, um, where coinage of various sorts is, starts to happen around 550 maybe not really very long afterwards. Um, one of this concept becomes much debated um, right around this time is a notion of li. Um, comes to mean profit. And it originally means like the, um, ex the increase of when you plant grain. Um, and then becomes to mean the sort of increase you get from buying and selling. And finally, it comes to be an abstract term for any sort of material advantage you get out of some kind of larger strategy. Um, actually, all three of them can be sort of nicely summed up in this quote from about Lu Buwei, who was the um, person who basically sort of put the guy on the throne who became the first emperor of China. Um, it's a famous, almost certainly apocryphal story about him when he discovers that there's an exiled prince living nearby. On returning home, he said to his father, what is the profit on investment that one can expect from plowing fields? Ten times the investment, replied his father. And the return on investment in pearls and jades is how much? A hundredfold. And the return on investment from establishing a ruler and securing the state would be how much? Oh, that would be incalculable. So he decided to adopt the prince, and uh, the rest is history. But um, during the, his reign, he actually... Um, put together a compendium of books uh, of uh, strategy in which um, you could see how the notion of profit became naturalized in the sense um, one of his most famous pieces of military advice that occurs in this book is, as a general principle, when an enemy's army comes, it seeks some profit. Now, if they come and they find the prospect of death instead, they will consider running away the most profitable thing to do. 
<laughs> when all one's enemies consider running away to be the most profitable thing to do, no blades will cross. This is the most essential point in military matters. Um, interesting to contrast with the sort of heroic logic prominent only a few generations before. Um, but that idea of, um, there was various other terms, uh, return on investment, strategic advantage, that were sort of being adopted um, around this time. What's fascinating is how the same term gets taken up by various philosophical movements, which are also social movements. I mean, one of the fascinating things, it's very, very clear in the Chinese case, and it becomes more clear over time in other cases, that what we take to be various philosophical schools were what we would now consider social movements. One of the most famous is the Mohists, um, who were dialecticians and logicians who also formed corps of combat engineers. They were a peace movement, and they thought that one way they could prevent war was by bringing like, technological advantage to whatever side was unfairly attacked. So if somebody attacked another city, they would sort of show up and, and help them out. Um, but but they, their basic analysis was based on the same principle of Lee. They, that that um, Mosey tried to demonstrate through very elaborate um, means that war is never profitable, even for the victor. Um, other sources at the same time, like the legalists, would tend to take this, that same principle. And um, this is the other thing, which oh, I should emphasize. You see remarkably appear everywhere right around this time. It's as if suddenly, right around 500 BC, like the equivalent of Henry Kissinger appears in China, India, and Aegean simultaneously. These sort of doctrines of hardcore real, real politics, the Lord Shang in China, Cotillia in India, um, people like Thrasymachus and the Sophists in Greece, whose works have not survived, but the other ones have. And read Cotillia, I mean, you know, he really makes Machiavelli look like a pansy. <laughs> it's an incredible level of cynicism. And they all say the same thing. There's a, some sort of notion of profit, which is closely related to um, these new forms of money. These new forms of money themselves are tied up in military affairs. So the distinction isn't made. Um, there's always this doctrine that the, the sort of profit of, uh, of the ruler is the ultimate reality, but you have to create some notion of justice to keep people happy in order to be able to... It's, it's completely cynical. Um, I mean, even like uh, Cotillia's famous manual of statecraft uh, actually could be translated handbook of profit according to some translations of the Sanskrit. Um, but at the same time, you have these movements like Mozi, which are basically, above all, peace movements, um, which either try to turn that logic against itself, um, as in Mosey's argument that war is never profitable, really, um, or, and this is what tends to be, the, this usually doesn't work out, those attempts, they always seem to be made, um, is an attempt to just simply turn the logic around and completely invert it. And that's what you have, for example, with Confucius. This is another quote um, from Mencius. Um, famous conversation of King Wee. Venerable sir, the king greeted him, since you have not counted a thousand miles too far to come here, may I suppose you also have something with you which may profit my kingdom? Mencius replied, why must your majesty necessarily use this word profit? Would I ever only two, these two topics, benevolence and righteousness and nothing else? And indeed, you, you, one could argue, and many have, that the sort of Confucian ideal of ran humane benevolence was sort of a logical inversion of everything that notion of pro uh, profit had developed, um, or had developed into. Um, I'll, I'll cut, and there's a long argument. You could, I could tell the same story in a different way in each place. Um, but 
what the basic pattern seems to go like this. Um, first, you know, markets when they first emerge in any recognizable form emerge much earlier in the Near East, at least as a side effect of government administrative systems. But what happens in the actual age is the logic of the market becomes entangled in military affairs. So it becomes almost indistinguishable from the mercenary logic of actual age warfare um, until finally it sort of defines the logic of government itself, which is how you get this incredibly cynical works of statecraft that just seem to appear everywhere at this point. Um, people have talked about the military coinage slavery complex. Um, they all seem to go together. Our war is about attaining slaves. Slaves are used to work the mines. Uh, mines are used to produce more metal to provide coins for soldiers. Um, professionalization of armies is a key part of this, and it seems to happen everywhere um, around the same time. But alongside it, you see the birth of these materialist philosophies, um, which are materialist in sort of both our classic senses of the term, in that they envision a world made up of material forces rather than divine powers, and also they imagine the ultimate end of human existence as the material sort of accumulation of wealth and morality and justice as being tools designed to satisfy the masses to better do this. Um, everywhere you see philosophers react to this by exploring ideas of humanity and the soul, attempting to find a new foundation for ethics and morality. When they oh, Everywhere you also see this common cause between such philosophers and social movements, and people have written about this at great length. Um, in, it's interesting, in China it seems to happen very early. Um, so in China, this is sort of, you get the ethical social movements first, and the cosmological speculation historically comes later. In India and um, Greece, seems to be the other way around. Um, but nonetheless, you the result is you have these popular movements that are also intellectual movements, which seems to be a new phenomena, uh, and one of the really key new phenomena of the axial age, aside from materialism itself. The assumption that those opposing existing power arrangements do so in the name of some kind of theory about the nature of reality. Um, it's remarkable regularity. These start as peace movements in that they reject the new conception of you know, violence and aggressive war as the foundation of politics. Um, in almost every case, it sort of wavers back and forth from the Mosey sort of approach, where you adopt this sort of new language that comes from these impersonal markets and try to turn it back against itself. For example, in the Vedic literature, there's a whole idea of like morality as debt, and they sort of play around with that in, in Greece as well. If you've read the Republic, you know, it sort of deconstructs the idea that you can take morality as debt, um, and it doesn't seem the Buddhists and um, various other James um, all kind of reject that notion. In almost every case, they try to use the logic of the market to create a counter um, argument, and it doesn't really work. Um, instead, <coughs> they, there's a process of schismogenesis where world religions and markets sort of seem to sort of form in relation to each other as opposite principles. But the other thing which seems to happen everywhere, and this is kind of interesting too, is that at a certain point the expansion of these empires sort of hits a dead end, as slavery systems, many would argue, necessarily always do. Um, and at exactly that moment, you get the emperors suddenly turning to these larger social movements and trying to institutionalize them. Um, the most successful was Wu Ti, who's uh, around 157 to 187 BC, who's uh, the first Chinese emperor to really adopt Confucianism. Um, that works. I mean, he manages to sort of preserve the empire in more or less something like the same form. It lasts for 2,000 years, really. Um, and Confucianism remains basically there. 
Um, I guess Constantine sort of was half successful. The church got institutionalized. The empire didn't do so well. Um, and Ashoka, I guess, in a way, did the least well insofar as his empire didn't last very long and Buddhism didn't last in the area of his empire itself, um, although it did well elsewhere. Um, so there was mixed success, but always seems to have been the same thing. Um, now, it's, it's uncanny, in a way, what the parallels are, but that material philosophy endures in various forms. Um, I think the Middle Ages is really interesting to look at in this regard, um, that you have both this turn towards virtual money and toward the sort of transcendental aspects, you know, which you know, were created and ideas were mapped out in, in the um, Axial Age, but they really become institutionalized and universalized in the Middle Ages at just the period where you go to these different types of currency systems. Um, again, how and why exactly this happens is a very interesting question, but it, it does seem to happen just about everywhere. Um, and for one fascinating thing, for example, is um, I'll give an example, uh, actually just shows how uncanny some of these parallels are. Um, think about the word symbolon. Remember Aristotle said that uh, money was just a convention, which was very much a minority position in his own day. It becomes universally accepted in Western Christendom, well, through first um, in Islam, and then later in Western Christendom, um, when St. Thomas Aquinas embraces that, that notion. But the word that he uses, and of course in China, this is just considered common sense, that, Whatever the emperor decides is money is money. Money is simply a social convention. Um, now, what's fascinating about this is um, the word he used, symbolon. Um, I don't know if people know the etymology of it. Uh, it actually originally meant something broken in half. It meant a tally stick. A symbolon, it could be broken in half as a contract, as sort of authorizing someone for something, but it was also used to, not sh to record debt transactions. So the word for tally becomes a word for symbol. In China, the word for um, tally stick, or well, one of the two words is fu, um, same, they use the same system. You know, they knocked pieces of bamboo in this case, um, or other types of wood were broken in half, and also became a word for sort of token of office. You'd give somebody half of something to authorize them to do something as an agreement. But then it became a word for a signer of portent and, and symbol. So the word for symbol, both in Chinese and in English, ultimately derives from tally stick debt token. Um, there's a kind of a weird inversion in how this happens. Um, in Europe, it's large, the word symbol, it's largely adopted by Dionysus the Areopagite, I think that's in the 6th century AD, um, who makes the argument that symbols are, like the host was his big example. They are, in fact, a sort of a piece. Remember, a, a classic symbol is something you break in half. Um, are a piece of the sort of, of the divine lodged in our world through which we can read and understand, but it's a god with whom we can't actually come into any sort of transactional relationship. So that aspect of the debt, you know, the sort of equal transaction element is eliminated, but the idea of it as a, as a sign is preserved. Um, Fu originally in, in Chinese came to be a symbol through talismans, which were actually were considered to be half of a um, uh, an agreement with gods of which the other half existed in heaven. Um, so there you actually could come into transactional relations with deities, but the problem is the symbol on the, the, the talisman you couldn't read. 
So it's in a way, it's, it's, it's an almost exact inversion. You can come into a transactional relation, but you can't read the writing. The writing is something that can only be understood by the gods. Whereas in our, um, Dionysus's case, um, again, drawing on the word for tally stick, um, it ultimately became something that you, can under, you, know, you can't enter into any sort of transactional relation with the divine, but you, at least you can read it. Um, but something quite fascinating is going on there in, um, in the parallel. Um, now, again, I think this kind of logic appears over and over again in different forms in the Middle Ages. And um, just I'll throw out one more example. Um, there's a famous essay by, by Wagner, actually, the, the, about the difference between the Rheingeld and the Holy Grail, both of which he wrote operas about, of course. And he was fascinated by the idea that the Rheingeld represented the sort of feudal idea of material wealth versus the Holy Grail as a sort of abstract symbol of, of capitalism. Um, I had no idea that Wagner was into this kind of thing, but apparently he was. Um, but I think he got it kind of wrong, because it's, it's, again, this mistake of assuming that, like, uh, the sort of abstract financial instruments are a modern phenomenon. In fact, um, Chrétien de Troyes, who first came up with the Grail legend, as far as we know, lived um, in, right in the middle of the Champagne Ferris, uh, which was the area where the financial instruments of Europe were, it was a big clearinghouse for the bills of exchange. And um, Mark Schell wrote an essay about this where he argued that the um, Holy Grail could almost be imagined as a symbol for a blank check. Um, it's very clear, it was no coincidence that it was right in the middle of this sort of zone of financial experimentation that this idea came about. Um, but I don't think this is like modern, I mean, capitalism, I think this is the stuff that everybody was doing in the Middle Ages. Um, this sort of complex financial instruments were being done for hundreds of years in the Middle East and it only just reached Europe around that time. A lot of these metaphysical corp concepts like the corporation are really very medieval ideas, um, whereas we think of them as capitalists. Um, Although, very briefly, um, you can see the same connection between money and notions of materiality, um, philosophical uh, materials theories, crop up really clearly in um, the last period um, that we've just gone through. Now, um, now, I'll give two very quick examples, since I don't have much time, but just throw out where this, these ideas might be going. Um, Hobbes has always fascinated me. Um, in this regard, is a sort of a reversion to this incredibly cynical logic of the state and where he was coming from. Um, the more I look at the history of currency at the time, the more I realize that the sort of war of all against all that he's talking, I think, was lingering in the back of his mind, comes more than anything else from reforms in the nature of money that were happening. I don't know if anyone's familiar with the work of Colin Muldrow. Um, who's looked at how money was actually used around 1415, 1600s. Um, basically, nobody had much cash, um, despite the sort of, we have this idea of the great inflation owing to all this gold and silver washing in from um, the Americas, but almost all of that ended up in China and India. Um, nobody actually had gold and silver access to much money at all, um, even at the height of that period. What people mostly did is they used a virtual money system. Everybody owed money to everybody else. Everybody kept account of it. And there was a yearly or half-yearly reckoning, as they called it, where everybody sort of canceled off their debts in giant circles and sort of anything that was left over, they would sort of arrange. And this was considered sort of the essence of morality. Um, 
eloquently, debt and morality were, and sociability were sort of entangled with one another to such a degree. And this is how you have you know, phrases like a person of no account, peer certain of great credit, uh, worthies. Um, the language of finance and of personal character were completely intertwined, but not because people's worth was considered to be based on their money, but people's money was based on their worth, because money was basically trust. Um, one of the fascinating things that happens around, right around the time of Hobbes is that, according to the law, of course, um, you know, debt, sin, basically is a crime. Uh, and the law is incredibly punitive. I mean, you could have people executed for, like, being in arrears uh, at a shop. I mean, if you played your cards right, probably you had to bribe the right person. But it was possible to do. Um, and generally speaking, people had a tendency to take important transactions to the courts to register them if they were important debts. But nobody ever actually took the action to its conclusion. I think like 99.5% of all like lawsuits about debt were, not, were never resolved. Because it was just a way of reporting things. At a certain point, for various reasons, um, it became possible to do so, and people started doing it for more, more and more. And you have this fascinating phenomenon whereby the stuff which was considered the very essence of sociability, I mean, it was considered normal that everybody should be in debt to one another, that's what social relations and community is all about, become effectively criminalized. Social relations itself become a criminal phenomenon. And the, you know, imagine the temptation when you suddenly realize that you're in a small community and you could have anybody you want thrown in prison or killed if you really put your mind to it. Um, I think, you know, war of all against all would be a good description of that. Um, and, of course, this was done through, you know, this, these state institutions that actually did work through solid well, physical money, which, again, is always mostly associated with war. Um, I think it's a really interesting way to reread Hobbes. But, I mean, with Locke, it just becomes incredibly obvious, because Locke was this person who was personally responsible, and I'll end with this, um, for the currency reforms of uh, 1695, the Bank of England being created in 1694, um, where government debt, this is a pattern that develops over the course of the Middle Ages, becomes the basis for money. Um, finally, is launched full scale. Um, turns into this very large argument about the nature of money. And as we all know, or I think we know Locke, um, was at the time working for the Mint. His boss was Sir Isaac Newton. Um, and um, made the argument that, you know, sort of ultimately materialist argument, that money, silver is money, silver and gold. And that um, all of these various complicated thing, medieval stuff where you would simply adjust the denominations and nature of the money in relation to some imaginary frame were nonsense. Um, and you can't, you know, his empiricist philosophy cannot be distinguished from his currency policies, which is the major way he actually enacted them. Um, now, I think all of this leads to the very interesting question of what's happening now. And I want to end by throwing this out, because that's what I'm, I'm really getting at. Um, we have gone, everybody talks about the sort of rise of virtual money as if it's a new phenomenon. You know, it's not. It's not at all. It's the sort of normal run of things. Um, but it's also happening in a radically different form than it's ever happened before. Um, and what I really want to throw out is, um, all right, you have you know these alternation between these rather rather periods marked by materialist ontologies and war, violence, gold and silver money. Um, these sort of metaphysical ages marked by virtual money. Um, what does it mean that we're moving back to one now? 
Uh, it seems that the very beginning, um, the dehitching of the dollar from the gold standard was accompanied by an almost flagrantly military system whereby U.S. Treasury bonds were being bought up mainly by countries that were actually under U.S. military occupation and then rolled over and the, the entire, it was a sort of disguised tribute system. Uh, that is what is almost now obviously falling apart, that sort of link between um, military power and um, uh, currency. It's and one has remarkable changes and assumptions, especially circulating around, you know, sort of technological determinist stuff about the internet. But I mean, I think this gives us a new framework for by we can start asking the questions of what's related to what and how, and, and in very different new ways. So rather than proposing, I have all sorts of ideas about what those might be. Rather than proposing any of them, I thought I might end by by throwing that out and um, asking. I think be a really interesting thing to start thinking about because you know we've, we've been here, here in a situation where um, clearly ethical things have happened. The entire financial world system almost fell apart last year. Their reaction was to put a really, really big trillion dollar band-aid over the thing and just not really to ask any questions. And there's a conversation that has to start happening. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to do here is, um, and I've been working on the last year, is to see if there's a, you know, the tools that we have as scholars can actually be useful in some way because the conversation seems to be inevitably postponed year after year after year and eventually it's going to happen. So perhaps this might give us at least some kind of possible language to talk about the larger processes that are right now taking place. Yeah.